How good and pleasant is it when God's people live together in unity? It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. were agreed in heart and mind. They declaimed that anything they had was their own. Instead, they shared everything they owned. With great power, the apostles continued their teaching. They were telling people that the Lord Jesus had risen from the dead and God's grace was working powerfully in all of them, so there were no nearly persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. They bought the money from the sales. They put it down at the apostles' feet. It was given out to anyone who needed it. To the 
This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light and he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we have made him a liar, and his word is not in us. My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, 
one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other's disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and God. Then Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Our God, thank you for your presence with us this morning. We pray that you would help us to be aware of you as we look into our own minds and as we um, interact with one another and as we worship this morning. Amen. Have you ever done a big thing? I mean, something big enough that it changed the direction of your life. Perhaps as a young adult, you moved out of your parents' home and you got your own place. Maybe you started a business at some point in your life. Sometimes people get married. Sometimes people have kids. Maybe you left one job and you moved somewhere else and got a different one. There are all sorts of big shifts that happen to people, and I'd like you to think this morning about a big shift in your own life. It could be a surprise that got sprung on you, or it could be a change that you initiated. It doesn't really matter. When those big shifts happen, there are two types of courage that you need. The first is the courage to go through the change itself. It might be scary and you might feel like you haven't got a clue or maybe that it's the best day of your life. But if you're going to move away from home, you have to get the word out that you're looking for an apartment and you have to find one. You have to say to your parents, hey, mom and dad, guess what? I'm moving to BC. You don't just close your eyes and wiggle your toes and end up in BC. Or if you start a business, you might need to borrow some money and you might need to buy some tools and get a website running and business cards and announce to people, tell your boss that you're going to quit and go out on your own. You can't get married without either popping the question or saying yes when your partner asks. Both of those things take courage on your part. You need willingness to change and you need willingness to take action so that your future looks different than the present. You might decide to quit smoking and you announce it to your friends and you throw your last two packs in the garbage. That takes courage. But then comes a separate type of courage. It comes after the first part is done. Moving to the city is one thing, but sitting there in your bachelor apartment when you haven't eaten anything other than many wheats and pizza pops in four weeks and you have no idea how you're going to pay the rent by Thursday, that takes a different type of courage from deciding to move in the first place. Sitting around in the evening on the third week after you quit smoking, when the you wish you could have a smoke, that takes a different type of courage from announcing to your friends that you intend to quit. Applying for a job and going to the interview is one thing, showing up day after day so that your boss can tell you what to do. That takes a different type of courage and you need both. Having a child with your partner is one thing that takes faith and courage. Raising that child is another thing and that takes a different kind of faith and courage. Starting a business is one thing. Filling the orders that come in once it's started, that's something else. 
The courage to make a change or to have it sprung on you is important, and the courage to live in the new situation is also important, but they are different and you need both. At this point, I need to take back some words that I have said in the past. I have often said in the church that if each person does the thing that they feel led to do, then by the grace of God, all the things that need doing will get done. I do believe that's true, but it isn't quite all of the story. I think the chances are that each thing that needs doing takes first some initiative and then some persistence. Some of us are good at initiative. We can start stuff all day long and we have a hard time following through. Others of us are good at persistence. Once we start a thing, we can keep chugging along for a long time, but it's tough to change directions. When you do a thing that you feel led to do, either in the church or in some other way, you need to go through the change. And then once that change happens, you need to live in the new situation. One of those things will be easier than the other, but both of them will be required of you. We find ourselves at the Sunday after Easter. Some church traditions speak about an entire season of Easter, not just one Sunday, to recognize Jesus' resurrection. And so this is the second Sunday of the Easter season, which stretches from now until Pentecost, which is on the 23rd of May this year. At Easter Sunday, we remember and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. At Pentecost coming up, we recall that the Holy Spirit came to Jesus' followers and the church grew very quickly. So during the season of Easter, we get seven weeks to think about how the resurrection of Jesus affects us who are here now, before we think specifically about the growth of the church beginning at Pentecost. We get seven weeks to pivot from the surprise of the resurrection to the persistence of the living church. For Jesus' group of original followers, his death came as a shock and disappointment. His resurrection also came as a shock, as we heard Derek read from John chapter 20. There was both joy and doubt. Maybe there was also confusion. But as the days went on, both the tragic shock and the joyful shock wore off, and the disciples needed to figure out how to live in the new time. That took them a while. They needed time to pivot from experiencing a change to living in the new situation. Pentecost does not come the day after Easter in the same way that Jesus was not raised from the dead on Friday afternoon. There is an important block of time set aside for people to think about what has happened. One of the common phrases in scripture is that such and such a thing will happen in the fullness of time. And that's the case here. The disciples need time to get their heads around what has happened before they are ready to get on with what will happen next. In this case, they get seven weeks. Seven weeks is enough time to shift gears, and that's exactly what happens during this block of time. And this is where we find ourselves after Easter. We have celebrated resurrection by faith, and we wait in expectation for the growth of the church. We are in a time between. We note that in John's Gospel, Jesus gives the gift of the Holy Spirit directly to the disciples before Pentecost, so they have the Holy Spirit's presence recognized among them during the quiet time, as well as during the busy time of action and expansion that comes later. This morning specifically, we recognize our place as a congregation 
in that same situation. We have come through times of difficulty and stress and sadness. That took some work and there were mistakes made, just as Peter and the other disciples made mistakes during the Easter story. We have come through times of happy surprise and celebration. For many people, the last year has been tough as we navigate the public health orders around the coronavirus and we do the best we can with the limited options available to us. For others, this time has been a welcome period of relief from overload. One way or the other, it's taken some figuring out. Through faith, we believe in the power of resurrection and trust that God has a path in mind. But it may be hard to see what that path is from where we stand now. Maybe we have initiated changes and maybe we have had them shoved onto us. This morning, I would like to leave you with one specific thing to think about as we move between the courage to go through a situation and the courage to settle into what comes next. And that thing is to reduce, reduce, reduce. What is essential and what is not? What needs to happen and what does not need to happen? What can you fit in the back of your little hatchback and what needs to stay at home in mom and dad's basement? We see that in the early days of the church, as described in Acts, the believers who were in the middle of a huge shift did only two things. They worshiped together and they took care of one another. That's all. That's right there is a basic summary of what the church does to this day. We are involved in worship on our own and together with others. Sometimes we prepare that worship and broadcast it out over the internet or CDs. Other times we gather together in homes or here in the church building, but worship first and always. And we take care of one another. The writer of Acts links these things together in verse 33. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. There was no policy statement or board of directors or charitable foundation or any other way of organizing it. The direct outworking of God's presence in that group was that they took care of each other. Worship and care, that's it. If those things are present, we are the church. Nothing else is required. If those two things are absent or one or the other is absent, we can have whatever else we want and it won't work because the core is missing. We worship God as made known through Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit, and we take care of each other. That's all. In doing so, the church becomes sort of accidentally evangelical as people see the results of that focus on worship and care and are drawn into it. When we are not worshiping and caring, nothing else successful will happen in faith until we address those two areas. When we are worshiping and caring, every other needed thing falls into place as an outpouring of the worship and care. Here I need to be careful not to speak against people who love policy and procedure, but policy and procedure in the New Testament church are secondary problem-solving measures to tweak the core areas of worship and care. That's not to say they aren't important, but it is to say that they are a means to an end and they are never the end in themselves. I make my living preparing construction drawings for people's houses 
I draw little pictures and I make notes about how the thing is to be built in a way that records that it is in compliance with the building code and local bylaws. My work is a necessary part of building a house, but you cannot move into your construction drawings. Your construction drawings will not keep the rain off your head. Construction drawings will not keep you warm. They are a secondary part of the process. Hopefully they help build you a good house, but they are not the house in themselves. The early church realized within a few weeks or months that although worship and care are the core, there needs to be a few tweaks to keep the process working. Deacons are invented in Acts chapter 6 as the first role added to the church as a way to make sure the caring process runs smoothly. And the church has its first policy meeting in Acts chapter 11 to talk about whether everybody needs to be Jewish or not as they participate in the worship. Since then, churches have added other positions and roles and systems, but those things express or aid or organize the two core functions of worship and mutual care. In our church, I've recently been having a good time with Dawson and Henry and David tweaking our sound system so that what gets said through the pulpit and headset mics is easier to understand. We're getting there, but we're not there yet. Hopefully, you can help us so that what gets said is as clear as possible. When we meet to tweak the sound system, we don't talk about what the sermon will be about. The role of the sound system is not to make sermons on some topics easy to hear and others hard to hear. And we don't set the mics up so that the songs we like sound good and the ones we don't like sound bad. Our role is to support and clarify everything that gets said and sung during a worship service or recording session. The sound system is an important tool, but it serves a purpose beyond itself. And in the same way, whatever organizations and systems and meetings and policies we set up are only worthwhile to the extent that they grow out of worship and care. And so that's where we find ourselves. It's the season of Easter, Christ is risen. The things we do as believers together are our reaction to a relationship with Jesus in life and in resurrection. Worship and care for each other form the core of that reaction, and in that way we are guided in our priorities. Once those priorities are in place, we come to realize the decisions that we need to make, and those decisions require courage. We have two types of courage, the courage to go through change and the courage to persist in change. Each of us is likely to find one easier than the other, but we need some of both, and so we need to help one another be brave in transition and brave in persistence. Worship, acts of care, courage in transition, and courage in persistence. By the grace of God, we follow in the path set out for us by Jesus Christ. Amen.
And now to the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forever. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.